Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. With our celebration of Easter last Sunday, the 40-day season of Lent has been upended by the 50-day season of Eastertide. Eastertide is an intentional celebration of Christ's triumph over darkness, sorrow, sin, and death. And we're beginning to see signs of Eastertide all around us, aren't we? From overwhelming wet, cold darkness to glimmers, glimmers of light and warmth. From the death of flowers and leaves to the life of blossoms and buds. From this barren altar during Lent to a flowering altar throughout this church season called Eastertide. And from the absence of Alleluia at the conclusion of our service to the presence of Alleluia as the final word of our service. Alleluia, which means God be praised. God be praised. For Easter outlasts Lent. God be praised. Light pierces the darkness. God be praised. And life grows up out of all this death. God be praised. Amen. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Alleluia. It's in the spirit of Eastertide that we begin a new sermon series this morning. It's titled Evolutionary Life. About this series we write, Eastertide is a celebration of resurrected life, which is very much the same thing as human flourishing. Central to human flourishing are Eastertide expressions such as hospitality, hope, mercy, and charity. However, according to evolutionary psychology, values like these aren't easy to embody. Woven into our DNA is the natural selection of traits that have preserved our lineage over millennia. Yet, as evolutionary psychology notes, some evolutionary behaviors hold no benefit in today's environments and may even cause harm as we pursue human flourishing. With this in mind, the sermon series will explore some of the inherent psychological barriers that can hinder human flourishing, such as tribalism, that's an inherent human barrier to flourishing, the desire to please others, our propensity toward criticism, and this insatiable desire for more, always more, right? And through the lens of neuroplasticity, which is very much like repentance, we'll be encouraged to have our minds quite literally resurrected into new life. Next week, we'll dive right into the propensity toward criticism, and then on the 23rd, we'll consider our propensity toward tribalism. On May 7th, we'll consider our propensity toward pleasing, and we'll wrap up Eastertide on May 14th by considering our sense that whatever we have, it just never seems to be enough. It's just never enough. And to be clear, I'm not trying to say that these deeply human proclivities are necessarily bad. They're not. They've actually, in some cases, been really helpful for us as human beings. For according to evolutionary psychology, we probably wouldn't be here today. Like, we wouldn't even exist right now without those in our lineage leveraging criticism, tribalism, pleasing, and that feeling that more is always needed. 
And yet, as helpful as these proclivities may have been for our ancestors, like years and years and years and years ago, maybe even millennia ago, evolutionary psychology notes that some evolutionary behaviors that are in us and embodied by us today hold no benefit in the current environment and may even harm the pursuit of our flourishing. And that is what this sermon series is intending to get at. Evolutionary behaviors that rather than sustaining life can have the opposite effect and keep us from truly thriving as humans in the world. And this brings us to a significant challenge, which is how do we change? How do we shift? How do we stop deeply human tendencies that reside way down, like way down deep inside of our evolutionary DNA? Answer, repentance. Now, depending on your relationship with repentance, you may be feeling really confused right now, right? For many of us, repentance has been about believing something up here in our heads or down here in our hearts. There's probably been somebody standing on a corner of a street with a sign over their shoulders, right, with flames at the bottom, and it's saying something like, believe or else, repent or perish. Another common use of repentance is its association with particular ways of being that someone high up in our religious systems has told us is sinful. They've said that particular thing or that particular way of being or that particular ideology is is sinful and you need to stop it in order to please God and be okay with God. But biblical repentance is so much deeper. It's so much wider. It's so much more wonderfully pervasive than those notions of repentance. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the word for repentance literally means to return. I think it's really helpful to start there. To return. To return. In my mind, this is really helpful in reshaping our understanding and notions about repentance. You see, repentance is more than turning away from something, and it's more than stopping something. Repentance is better than putting an end to a certain behavior or sin. And repentance is something greater than morality management. Now, to be clear, repentance may include turning away from something. But at its core, the essence of repentance is to return. Halot, H-A-L-O-T, is the preeminent Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Halot defines the Hebrew word for repentance as follows. A word which is used for someone who has shifted direction in a particular way and then shifted back from it in the opposite way. As long as there is no contrary factor, the assumption is that such persons or people will return and reach the original point from which they departed. I'll read that last part again because it's really important in reframing our understanding of repentance. The assumption is that such persons or people will return and reach the original place from which they departed. With this in mind, the fundamental question that repentance must ask is not, what am I to turn away from, but rather, to where? To where am I to return? You see, repentance isn't about leaving something or becoming something that you're not. It's actually about going back to something that is deeply and truly you. And the answer of where we're trying to return to is home. 
Uh, let me explain. The contextual narrative for repentance in the Hebrew scriptures is Israel's return from exile in Babylon. Now, just for a moment, let's pause and remember that story. God saves Jacob's children from bondage in Egypt. In the wilderness, they make a covenant with God to be a different kind of people in the world. And then this covenant people enter into the land. And the land throughout the Hebrew scriptures literally and metaphorically represent the very presence of God in the life of Israel. And so in Judges and Kings, when Israel loses its way, you could say when Israel loses itself, when Israel loses its identity, Israel ends up in captivity in Babylon. And when they do, Israel is absolutely certain, just just certain that they have lost God. And although we agree with St. Paul that God is the one in whom we move and breathe and have our being so that we can't actually lose God, nobody can lose God, perhaps losing ourselves, like perhaps losing who we are supposed to be, who we've been knit together in our mother's womb to be, kind of feels like we've lost God. At the very least, it'd be right to say that we've wandered far from home. And so what happens? Well, as the story goes, God moves king of Persia, King Cyrus, to let Israel return. And even better, God promises to go with the Israelites on their journey through the wilderness back to the land. And so stirred up and helped by God, Israel makes a return home. Now, fast forward to the Gospels, the oldest Gospel, Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, reads, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make their paths straight. Why? Why John the Baptist? Why prepare the way? Why make paths straight? Like, when all of the paths in our lives are turning and bending and moving all of these different directions, why is the straight path so important to be made ready? Well, verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Repent and believe in the good news. You see, it couldn't be more clear. It's time to go home. It's time to leave behind life in Babylon, life in Rome, in order to return. I think the idea is something like this. It's easy to lose yourself in the world. Like, it's easy to lose yourself. It's easy to forget that you were knit together by the divine, created for beauty and made to love. It's easy to forget that. And there are these moments when each of us realize that we have lost our deepest, truest self. We've all been there, right? Uh, Sometimes it's at its climactic moment on December 31st when we're thinking about our lives and we're taking stock of what we've done and who we are and where we've come from and where we're going. There are these moments where we feel as though we've lost ourself or like we don't even know who we are. And if we were to use biblical language, we could say something like, I have become an exile in Babylon. What am I to do? And the biblical answer is return. You're supposed to return. You see, the beauty of return is that you're not leaving yourself to become something else, something other, something that somebody told you that you need to become. No, you are actually returning, which means that you are going back to your very self, 
And for some of us, I think it's really hard to believe that there is deep down inside of us somewhere, like below all of the self-protective behaviors that our trauma has taught us, that deeper than the trauma is that dazzling, creative, vibrant, loving self that sits even deeper inside of us than our DNA proclivities toward criticism and tribalism and pleasing and that never-ending need for more. And this, you see, is good. I would say it's the good news of repentance. But repentance is about more than just returning. In the New Testament, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. The Greek roots for this word combine to mean go beyond the mind that you have. Or put simply, change your mind. How about that for repentance? We've thought one way for a very long time, perhaps for a very long time since we were little and we started to experience trauma and hurt and pain and we had to start getting strong and big and armor ourselves for the world. And so we've had these neural pathways start to get stuck and have us think a certain way and be a certain way. But what if repentance can be the divine saying to each of us, hey, have that way of thinking changed. Have your mind altered. The difficulty with this way of repentance is that as we grow, we tend to become more and more set in what we think, right? We tend to become more certain, less adult and, or less child and more adult, which means less openness, less mystery, less wonder, less hunger and thirst for learning and growing, fewer questions and more, always more answers. There's actually a scientific reason for this, and it's found in the land of neuroplasticity. Did you know that some of the first scientists believed that the brain stopped growing after childhood? Like, think about that. Some of the earliest scientific findings thought that the brain stopped growing after childhood. And so, you know, you have these childhood years, maybe up into adolescence, but eventually you get into early adulthood and adulthood, and that brain, it just stops growing. It stops developing. It stops changing. You've gone from being this transformative human in the world to being a set, fixed human in the world. With this in mind, it kind of makes sense that adulting was once thought of as a process that found its end in ceasing to grow. And I think the remnants of this way of thinking exist today. Adults don't grow. Children grow. Adults don't learn. Children learn. Adults should give answers, not ask questions because adults have already grown. And so many adults, I think, feel bad or guilty or ashamed when they make a mistake or do something foolish. But what if mistakes and foolishness aren't signs of our failures as adults? Like, what if mistakes and foolishness are merely invitations into ongoing growth and transformation, which neuroplasticity makes clear is a lifelong, never-ending process? Consider this scientific good news. Neuroplasticity tells us that our adult brains are not fixed. That's really good news. Like, as fixed as you kind of think you might be, as fixed as your brain is, as fixed as your life is, neuroplasticity tells us that our brains are not fixed. According to neuroplasticity, we have mental and behavioral flexibility. That is good news. According to neuroplasticity, nerve cells in the brain are capable of adapting. This is good news. According to neuroplasticity, the brain is a dynamic organ which can change its design throughout life. Like, how good is that? 
This means, scientifically speaking, that deeply embedded familial patterns, like the stuff that you learned as a child in your family system, those patterns can change. That's good news. This means that lifelong patterns can change. This means that evolutionary patterns, like criticism, tribalism, pleasing, and the need for more, all of these patterns and ways of being can change. It's truly good news. Because there are these moments in our adult lives, aren't there? When we begin to feel like, well, this is just who I am. Anybody ever feel that? This is just how I am, right? Baked into my familial and evolutionary bones is this particular way of being, and it sinks me. No matter how hard I try, it sinks me in my relationships. It sabotages my life every single time. But it doesn't have to be that way. Biblical repentance declares deeper than the harm, deeper than the brokenness, deeper than the habituated that is your deeper than the habituated that has become your life is your pure true longing to thrive self return a biblical sense of repentance declares in concert with contemporary findings on neuroplasticity your brain can change of course it won't be easy the goodness of neuroplasticity requires intentional training and practice. And so it's going to be something more than just praying a prayer and poof, we're changed. The goodness of neuroplasticity requires deliberate awareness and purposeful strategies. It requires exposing ourselves to situations that demand ongoing patience. And yet the telos, that is to say the goal of all of this work, is what scientists call new wiring or rewiring. Sometimes it's referred to as a structural remodeling of the brain. How good is that? You start to form these practices and mindfulness things that you do in the morning or these moments throughout the day that you pause to try and become something different and to think something different. And somebody notices, right? You're outside and you're leaning against a wall and your eyes are closed and you're thinking through something and somebody asks you, what are you doing? And you say to them, I am working on a structural remodeling of my brain. Yes, let's do that. Let's do that over and over and over again. Let's change and be transformed and return to these deeply good selves that are deep down inside of us all. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, Jacob is running for his life. He stole his brother's birthright by deceiving his blind and dying father. It's like bad on bad. Jacob is just not doing well. And during the first night of his escape, he has nowhere to sleep, filled with what I can only imagine is overwhelming shame and fear, right, because of how he's behaved. Jacob took a stone, placed it under his head, and fell asleep. During his sleep, he saw angels ascending a ladder up into heaven and descending a ladder down onto earth. And then the story tells us that the Lord came and stood beside Jacob in his dream and spoke these words. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Like, you're going off in this direction. It's the wrong direction, and you're going to have to go that way for a while. But eventually, at some point, I'm actually going to help you return back home to the place that you're supposed to be, to the kind of person that you're supposed to be, to the kind of person that you really want to deep inside of yourself actually be. And this is so exciting that Jacob wakes up and he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. He actually says, this is the very house of God. This place right here in my moment of running full of shame and fear, right here in this space is where God itself dwells. 
what is this? Well, this is clearly a repentance story in which God shows up in one of Jacob's darkest moments declaring, you will return home and I will help you. I'm guessing that like Jacob, we've all done things that have filled us with so much shame and fear that we have come to believe that we are forever, right? Forever. Perhaps even down to our very soul, lost, banished. Some churches have told us that from our infancy we were depraved with original sin, and so it's just deep inside of us that we are bad. But what if the good isn't out there? What if the good isn't like back there somewhere or up ahead somewhere? What if the good is actually, what if the good is actually right here? Like inside of you. Right there in that deep self, that true self, that good self, down below everything that you've done is a way to protect yourself. Right? Like, like that generous self. What if deep down is a generous self below that self that first felt scarcity? Right? Because at some point we all felt scarcity and it became very difficult to live as a generous person, even though before that scarcity, kids just give and give and give and give and give, right? Because stuff's just falling from the trees. Life is so good. Or that honest self, below the self that first felt shame. There's an honest self down in there. Or that trusting self, below the self that first felt abandoned. Or that hopeful self, below the self that first felt wounded. You see, we all sleep on rocks, but God shows up hoping on our behalf that we might do the hard work, the good work of returning home. That's the hope of God. And then there's that glorious story that we heard from the New Testament in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a religious Pharisee who became a Pharisee by knowing all the rules and having all the answers. You know, a real adult. That's what Pharisees were, right? You became a Pharisee by having all the answers, by perfectly obeying all the rules. And so Pharisees were held up as like the ideal adult that all less adults should try and become. Well, this Pharisee sneaks out to Jesus in the middle of the night and they have a talk about the kingdom of God and Jesus tells him that he cannot enter without becoming a child. He can't actually enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. And Nicodemus tells Jesus that being born again is impossible. Plus, if you're a Pharisee and you've worked so hard to adult, why would you want to go back to being a child again? But Jesus is resolute, saying, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you heard the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, the divine invitation isn't to grow up into Pharisees, fixed adults with all of the answers. Rather, the divine invitation is into a life that is open to the wind that blows where it chooses. Oh, the wind... I don't want to follow wind that blows where it chooses, right? I want to put it on my calendar. April 24th, I'm going to do this. May 6th, I'm going to do that. I don't want to be part of this thing where it's just wind blows where it chooses. Oh, man, but when we feel that wind blow, and you felt it, like when an assortment of circumstances begin to point us clearly in a new direction, we felt that wind blow. Or like when we see something or hear something and we feel our minds and our hearts actually in that moment expanding. We felt that wind blow. Or like when that moment occurs during which the hair in our neck and arms stand straight up while we learn to say yes 
yes to this wind blowing that is asking us to change. This, you see, is the goodness of repentance, which is very much like saying the goodness of being born again, which can happen at any time in any moment because truly as Jacob came to realize this entire world is the house of God, magnificently capable of structurally remodeling our very brains for good, for flourishing, for resurrected life. May it be so, and let us pray. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.